0: Okay, I'm going to start, okay? Go for it. Welcome back to Toxic Feminine Mystique. Um, we are back here again with our guest from last time, backed by popular demand. Um, people have been <laughs> clamoring for her to come back onto the podcast. So today we have myself, um, Stella. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> And then Anastasia, who joined us for our horror episode and um, wanted to have her on for this one as well. Hello. <laughs> this is sort of like an abortion type f- or part four. So like an addendum to our abortion series. This is a topic that um, I became interested in because of TikTok. So we're going to be talking about adoption today, and um, why adoption is not an answer to the question of abortion, to like the the larger conversation about abortion, because it is it's often framed like it is like. You know, if people are unable to get abortions and they're, like, forced to go through their pregnancies, it's fine. They still don't have to pair it because they can just give the child up for adoption. And there are a lot of reasons why it's not that simple and it's not an acceptable answer. Um, and we kind of wanted to talk through why that was. And also, I think both of us are just really interested and excited to share some of the stuff that we've learned with Stella So we independently, Anastasia and I, um, well, first of all, we're both very, very into TikTok, which is an app for children. And
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like, though, that you guys, like, I use it occasionally, and I like that you guys have used it to really explore these really deep, like, Societal and like systemic issues, types of questions. And mostly I get like sucked into like swinger talk, TikTok, subculture, <laughs> et cetera. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm learning up about like femicide. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I did spend an hour on TikTok last night watching horses get re So I think that that's oh, like, do you? <laughs> Do you watch the lesbian couple that shears like sheep and yes, llama? The co- oh, they're yes. so good,
2: so yes. good. I think they're like right choice shearing. Yes,
0: they are. Yeah.
1: Yes, I, I watch a lot of TikToks where it's like a um, gener- like a Zoomer guy pretending to interact with you in like a <laughs> in like an enticing way. What? <laughs> not, I have no idea what
0: you're talking
1: about. <laughs> In like a very cringeworthy way. I'm not okay. getting like my jollies out of this. No, it's like. This or, is like, softcore porn. Like, no, 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 no. There's like an entire genre of like boys with like a cross earring, like pretending mm. to be arrested. And then like at the last <laughs> moment, they like look at you. <laughs> What the hell? Yeah, okay. About? I need to check this out so fast. Okay, let me find a good one and I'll and I'll send it to you. I swear, Please. this is like a new type of guy just
0: dropped and he makes this type of video exclusively. <laughs> I people should know that I send Stella probably a dozen TikToks a day and she's never responded for the months that I've to- spent <laughs> <laughs> oh. I sent you so many. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I need to I need to get back into it. <laughs> Do you ever well, log into it and see? I probably sent you hundred I... <laughs> and fifty TikToks. You never said anything back ever. <laughs> oh, kind of... I'm
1: sorry. I find them through Instagram. Um, that's like the most boomer thing I could, I find them through a, I watch them through a different social media. You know,
2: that reminds me of how my dad, like, almost every day, he sends me, um, his old secretary, my uncle, and my brother, um, he sends all of us, uh, emails of memes. <laughs> every day.
1: Uh, yeah, Every day. That's so sweet. That's honestly, my um, husband's dad really wanted to send him an article he read so he printed it out and then I think he like scanned it and
0: mm. sent it, emailed it to him or oh, I love it when people like print out tweets in front of yep yep yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, check your inbox, Stella, and you'll find for the last three months I've sent you one dozen job TikToks every single day. (laughs) Yeah. See, I
1: I like you saying Instagram because when I do go into the app, I'm looking at the weirdest shit. Like, I'm looking at, (laughs) like… college christians talking about their like why jesus's love is like a um fruit snack or something like sometimes you get the grape ones and some i mean
0: i've seen that one it's the two girls yeah and every day they eat the fruit snacks
1: Sorry, I'm trying to find these boys get arrested. Feel, I'm sending it to like you right Stella, now. Stella,
2: Stella has a very different experience with the internet than I do. <laughs>
1: well, if you look up fucked up shit, like that's what the algorithm is gonna send you. So okay, I'm sending you these, these boys getting arrested. Like uh, okay. this is a whole rabbit hole that I'm down. Uh, I'll check okay. it out. Let's get okay. into the
0: topic at hand though. <laughs> okay, so um, back on track. So Both of us kind of ended up independently on adoptee TikTok. So I don't know how familiar our geriatric listeners are with TikTok. Um, but there are kind of like ends up being different corners of it, kind of like there are corners of Twitter and there is a a thriving community of people who, um, have been adopted sharing their experiences and like just how, um, traumatic adoption is. Even if, like, you have a perfectly, like, healthy relationship with your second family um, and then how fraught the industry is um, and how, like, even under the best of circumstances, adoption is always some level of trauma. Um, and I, I had no idea. And I actually think the first – one of the first couple toxic feminine mystiques, I said something like, um, you know, you should never stigmatize adoption. You should say, like, make an adoption plan instead of give up the baby for adoption. And it's just because, like, it had no- – I had never really thought for – or listen to the voice of any adoptee at all, mm-hmm. which which sounds terrible. But I just I just had no idea. I didn't know anyone who was adopted, and um, like you know, I hadn't kind of found people telling their stories. So I kind of ended up in a rabbit hole of following a bunch of different adoptees talking about what it's like to be adopted and. You know, what their relationship is with their with their first family, with their second family, like some of the issues regarding international adoption, and it got me really interested in it. Um, and so then I was like reflecting last week within the context of the larger abortion conversation, because I saw like some dipshit just say like, you know, people don't need to get abortions because the adoption is right there as a loving option or whatever. And there, there are lots of reasons why that's just not true. And if we're doing a series where we kind of talk about the rhetoric that people use surrounding abortion and how can you more comfortably talk about abortion with the people in your life. I think it's really important to know when someone says that to you, like, how can you respond? Like, why exactly is adoption not this, like, answer that makes abortion unnecessary or, like, a luxury or, you know, it's it's totally fine. You can just do adoption. That ta- that takes care of the entire problem, um, quote unquote. So I wanted to talk about it a little bit. So um, I think both Anastasia and I um, really want to center, center the voices of – the people involved much more so than our own. So to accompany this episode, um, I have a list of like 50 different blogs that um, adoptees and birth mothers um, have written about their experiences. And then I've I've read some really good writing from Kept Children, which means the children of birth parents who they ended up parenting either before or after a child has been given up for adoption. And the way that impacts um, the kept children, the um, adoptee, and then the impact, the intergenerational trauma that can occur. So like um, people writing, reflecting, I read someone who was 50 years old looking through now that she has a grandchild. How has that impacted her parenting? How did it impact her kept child? Um, you know, this this is something that has really long-term ripple effects on, like, people around you. And I, I really want to center their experience and not act as though I know what it would be like to be a birth parent or an adoptee. So we plan to share a tweet thread with a bunch of different people you can follow on TikTok if you're on TikTok, um, and then different blogs you can read to learn more. I think both of us have had some it's there's rough rough stories like really Really awful emotional stuff that people can go through with adoption, um, and it's it's often sold as this like beautiful loving choice. Um, but the reality is that it can be really ugly and really traumatizing, and so much of it is hidden from view. Um, and because this is America, so much of it is profited from. Yeah. So it it can be pretty dark. I think both of us have gotten like pretty upset with some of the stuff that we've read. But I really do want to um, kind of centered center people's voices and I had thought of potentially sharing some some essays that I read but I, I feel a little uncomfortable about like I, I don't know like putting it I don't know I just yeah. I would prefer that they said it in their own words yeah or, and
2: we don't need to just repeat their words because it is so easy to just listen to them directly
0: hmm yeah I guess I just felt uncomfortable with that because of how silenced I think adoptees are coming as someone who didn't think for a second about this until, Mm -hmm. you know, very recently. So I would just – I'd prefer if people would please seek out some of these stories and hear directly, you know, from adoptees and from um, people who have been victimized by private adoption agencies, Um, you know, people – like, who are, like, social workers who work with them. Like, just just try to seek out these stories. Um, we'll make it as easy as possible for you. So I just – I wanted to start by talking a little bit about some of the numbers and, like, um, you get kind of a broader picture on it and, like, what the lobbying looks like, what the industry looks like. And you can – what this looks like on a human level, I would like people to be able to tell their own stories. So we'll be sure that those resources available to you, um, you know, wherever you're listening to this. So they, I think it was, it was always kind of sold to me that like, you know, you have an unplanned pregnancy, you have three options. You have abortion, adoption, or choosing to parent. Um, and there, there was always this kind of concept that, Adoption is this like beautiful selfless thing. And, you know, an adoptee gets to be so loved by their birth parents and then get to be with the chosen family. And like it was this beautiful connection that people had found. And I I think I just never really questioned that. Mm -hmm. And I also had never. I had no idea the relationship between private adoption agencies and the pro-life movement and like how much big money is actually involved in this and how that's influenced a lot of our policy policymaking. Um, I'm going to talk about what kinds of laws have been passed that have been lobbied for by the private adoption agency um, industry, but it's, it's significant. So, um, Private adoption agencies, when I talk about that, I'm talking about infant adoption. So there is adopting out of foster care, which is, um, you know, exactly what it sounds like. Um, A foster placement is intended to hopefully end in reunification. Um, Sometimes it ends in adoption by the foster family. Um, There's familial adoption, which I, I personally think is ideal, like, for families to belong together which is where, you know, you have a family member who takes over guardianship of, uh, of the child born by another member. Um, and then there is infant adoption, which is when you when you picture adoption, like, you know, the movie Juno or whatever the fuck you yes. think of, um, <laughs> where, you know, you can you connect a teenage mother with this like, you know, Wonderful couple, and they flip through a book, and they pick the family, and it's this like beautiful thing. Whatever, that's what I'm talking about. So, the adoption agencies come in both private and nonprofit. Um, they are both bad. Don't let them hide behind the nonprofit label. Um, everyone who knows me has heard my rant about how bad nonprofits are, but <laughs> <laughs> these are these are the same. It's it's both industries that are um, at least in America. They, I read a really interesting study comparing um, the Australian private adoption industry and the American one, and this is this is a pretty uniquely American problem because in other places it is not legal for companies to profit and deceive the way they do here. Um, mm. Like, and other countries usually have you know social supports that mean that the very. Like process of living within a country is coercive. So if you have socialized medicine, if you have robust family leave, if you have some of those things offered, then a lot of the problems with private adoption kind of go away because the biggest reason why people relinquish infants is financial. And so I I had always heard that you know, I'm monologuing a little bit, I'm sorry. No, we love it.
1: <laughs> we, we love
0: your rants. Yeah. <laughs> I really, really have gotten interested in this.
1: Well, yeah, I mean it's it's so fascinating because like there, uh, when you tell someone, well, why aren't you, why aren't you doing the loving choice like this baby? You can give it up for adoption, that sort of thing. It's like, have you interrogated that for one second about <laughs> like what that experience would actually be like for the the person who's going through that pregnancy and like you said, Natalie, like my understanding of all of this is so narrow. I don't know anything about like what you're about to share and what you and Anastasia have learned. Like this is totally something that I have absolutely no understanding of. And I think most people do have like that romanticized understanding of it. We all saw Juno.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, really. And, um, you know, I had always heard about the high costs of adoption. I knew that I never, Yeah. Like it's yeah, really expensive. It's really expensive. And I never really knew why. And I guess yeah. I just never thought about this stuff for more than ten seconds. And I mean, that's like on me. But at the same time, it's like if you've never like kind of interrogate the like lies we tell themselves about the tell ourselves mm-hmm. about this industry, like why would you? So I had kind of an epiphany. Going through some of this stuff, so I went and looked up a couple of the the private adoption agencies in the Des Moines area, and found one called Holt International where they had like a fee breakdown online. So pulled it off and like looked through what the costs are, and it to- it totals between twenty five and fifty thousand dollars to adopt an infant, mm-hmm. wow. and. The number one reason that people give for why they are putting their baby up for adoption is financial. Yeah, there's on TikTok, I've seen some
2: accounts discussing like conspiracy theories are flowing around like Facebook land because adoption rates are down right now. Um, And one of them is that the COVID stimulus relief checks were enough money that people Mm. are choosing to parent their children
0: Yeah, and I guess I just never really thought what it meant for the majority of people giving a child up for adoption to do so for financial reasons. While Mm -hmm. it costs $50,000 for someone to adopt that child, that is purchasing an infant. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening. Well, how can you tell if they're a good family? It's if they have money, Natalie. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and it's just like, it's insane. It's like, if we just cut families' checks for, you know, yeah. one tenth of that, they could, families could stay together. Like, yeah. it's so sick that we allow agencies to take $50,000 from a wealthy family to buy a baby from a poor family who if the person wants to parent, they have a right to parent. They should not be kept from having their baby because they don't have money. That's fucking sick. Yeah. That is a diseased country. If something like not having childcare, not having money, not having healthcare is keeping people, children's people's children are being taken from them because of those things. People that want to parent are having their babies bought from them. That's a sick fucking country. And I think that like that never, I never really put those things, two things together about like how fucked up that really is. Like there, there was a study I was reading and I'm going to, I'm going to link a bunch of these, like the different like studies and articles I read. Um, but the woman went through and using like surveys, post adopt adoption surveys, like with birth mothers talking about like why they made the decisions that they did and found that money could solve the problems in 93.3% of Oh my gosh.
2: Oh my god.
0: Ad- adoption cases. It is like it's like one out of every 15 people who put their baby up for adoption would choose to parent if it was not for money in one way or another whether it's like lacking social supports lacking childcare lacking the ability to get an education you know what, mm-hmm. whatever it may be it's it comes down to poverty and so essentially we are making poor women into baby farms to funnel infants up to people who want them and there, there is absolutely nothing that makes a rich family a better parent than a poor family. There is no difference in levels of, in, of child abuse. There is no difference in the healthy environment of a family, with the exception of the things that are impacted by poverty. So if we were to just cut checks to families, families could stay together, and moms wouldn't essentially feel like they have to sell their infants in order to get prenatal care Um, and they'll tell you that like agencies will tell you that's not what's happening but it, it literally is what happens is that young vulnerable people get sucked up into this industry and by the time they have a a chance to really get an opportunity to back out if they decided they wanted to, it's too late. The coercion's in place, the money's in place, the pressures are in place. And, you know, if, if you think like every, every pregnant person who comes in your door is worth $50,000, are you really going to let them just walk away?
2: Yeah. There's, (laughs) there's so many cases I've heard about where the people who want to adopt are very predatory, um, repeatedly, contacting people offering them money directly and then i've even heard of cases where the birth parent um decides to back out and they're sued
0: yeah they're told they have to pay it back
2: yeah they had to pay back like the prenatal care which is frequently frequently that's really
0: all they're compensated for is just their medical bills Yes. To be, to be clear, this money, when I say sell babies, this money goes to the agencies. Mm-hmm. This doesn't go to the moms. Like, people are not – I mean, what I'm talking about is specifically, like, the agencies, yeah. the middlemen are making this money, and the moms are doing it because of, like, the tremendous financial pressure, and maybe they don't have another way to get um, the things they need yeah. to have a healthy pregnancy. And then by the time, you know, you've had your medical care paid for – or you've met this family, or, you know, whatever it may be, it's it's really difficult to back out even if you want to. Something we've talked
1: about throughout the abortion series is, like, how if healthcare was free, and, like, like if you're a good socialist, like, you believe that healthcare should be free for everyone, like, it's not just a question of, like, like, if I have access to free prenatal healthcare, like, that is a huge reason why I might not, be giving my child up for adoption or going through that process. And it's the same with like, like access to abortion. Like if abortion was made illegal tomorrow um, or if there are continuous barriers to receiving it, and we've talked about like the cost of it as well. If you like are a good socialist, then you understand that people have different access today to healthcare and like if you think anyone anyone should be able to get the same high quality healthcare that's going to be right for them regardless of their ability to produce like capital <laughs> <laughs> for for the country like this is definitely a socialist issue this is part of being like a good human is is reproductive healthcare and reproductive access and and prenatal care is just
0: Under that umbrella as well. Yes, absolutely. So um, these are kind of, so I want to, for my portion of it, I want to um, talk a little bit about why adoption isn't an answer to the adoption question and then segue into, like, what are some of the laws surrounding adoptions and how are um, for-profit agencies exploiting those laws? Because I think throughout the series, we've tried to put things into actionable steps. So, like, you can look at, like, what sorts of things are they lobbying for, which means, like, what sorts of things should you oppose, even if they sound good on their face? So an example of that is, like, open adoptions, which, you know, in, in some ways is a lot better than in the past. But in other ways, this is a, like, way to put a positive marketing spin on the entire process <laughs> to further co- coerce, yeah. um, you know, birth mothers into the idea that they're like, oh, you'll get to see pictures. But there's actually no legal recourse if the if the adoptive family decides no, you can't have any contact with us. There's it's not legal. So um like advocate advocating for, you know, that to be something that is within contracts or something, enforceable, those kinds of things are like kind of actionable steps. So that's what I was thinking. And then we'll go into Anastasia is gonna say share information about dissolution and displacement. I think it's disruption. Disruption, sorry. Yeah. So that's kind of how I wanted to go through this issue. So the first is why adoption is not an acceptable answer as an alternative to abortion. First of all, um, I read a study today that basically they go through, they were tracking uh, pregnant people. Um, who ended up being turned away from having an abortion. And what are the outcomes? What did they go on to do? And only 4% of the people who are turned away from having an abortion go on to make an adoption plan. So it's just not true that, you know, this is gonna be the thing that people do. Oh, if they can't get an abortion, they'll they'll just do adoption. You know, that's that's just not the way it goes. And the the intention of adoption agencies, I think, in their advocacy is to, you know, if they can force people to have babies, then they'll have a more steady supply of relinquished ink infants but you know what really happens is that people um are they decide to parent because they have like you know had this pregnancy this entire time like they they didn't want to be separated from their infants and then that like further puts like incredible like poverty pressures on their family and like makes it more difficult for them to raise their children so it's it's just not an answer like it doesn't it doesn't fit into that spot. That's not really what happens, um, and that's mm-hmm. uh, that's not truly the intention either. Um, it's just a way to make your pro-life position seem more humane um, when it absolutely is not. Um, I think it, it's kind of like a marketing thing. Like, oh, you can just you can yeah. just choose adoption <laughs> so that you don't have to grapple with what it means if someone is like raising a child that they like did not you know, don't necessarily want to be a part of their life, which, like, there are some people like that. So I would say that there are a couple reasons why, besides the fact that it's just, like, not a realistic solution, why it's not an alternative to abortion. Um, One would be because you still have to go through the pregnancy, yeah. um, and it's significantly less risky to have an abortion than it is to go through a pregnancy and birth. So you could potentially have, like, poor maternal outcomes, someone dying in childbirth who would not necessarily have done that if they were able to get an abortion early in the pregnancy. And there are medical reasons that people seek abortions that if they're unable to get them could cause them to have higher risk pregnancies. I also think that it is a human rights violation to force someone to go through with a pregnancy and birth that they don't want to have. Um, I think that that is akin to torture. I talked on the last episode about my experience with pregnancy, um, and prenatal depression, but I, I mean, I can't imagine what I would have done if I was going through that and it was, uh, for a pregnancy that I did not want to be carrying. Mm. The, the outcomes would be horrific with like, you know, mental health crises and suicides. And it's just it's not just like on top of the problems with the private abortion industry or private adoption industry, Jesus Christ, there is just the issue of it's simply not humane to force people to give birth who don't want to give birth. It's also a, we talked a little bit about reproductive coercion, but it can also be a form of reproductive control to force someone to go through a pregnancy that they are not necessarily wanting to complete. So there there are, like, besides just the fact that there are lots of problems with adoption in general, from a human rights perspective, it is not an answer to abortion. It's just not. Those things aren't equal. Those aren't the same. Like it just, it just simply does not take the place of abortion. It just doesn't. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the industry, how it works, um, what are the problems with it, um, what has their political clout been, etc. So private adoptions are a fourteen billion dollar a year industry in America, which is holy shit. <laughs> absolutely floors <laughs> me how much money people are able to make off of adoptions and so if you like with a financial incentive that huge I mean with every baby being worth 25 to fifty thousand dollars, I mean the the pressure to get people to relinquish babies even if they're not sure that that's what they want to go through is intense and you know it it makes sense so um I'm looking at no one centrally tracks private adoptions in the U.S. This is from an article called The Baby Brokers Inside America's Murky Private Adoption Industry. It's in time. I highly recommend it. It's excellent. Um, but there's basically no tracking of private adoptions. That that kind of rolls into, I think, some of what Anastasia is going to talk about. But this is like a, a wildly unregulated industry. Um, in other countries, it definitely is much more regulated. But... This is a particularly toxic place um, for adoption plans to be made, and I think we're going to talk more about that later, too. But basically, there it's difficult to get estimates of this. But best estimates from the Donaldson Adoption Institute and the National Council for Adoption peg the number of annual non-relative infant adoptions at roughly 13,000 to 18,000. Um, public agencies are involved in approximately a thousand of those, suggesting a vast majority of domestic infant adoptions involve the private sector and the market forces that drive it. It's a fundamental uh, problem of su- supply and demand, says Celeste Liversridge, an adoption attorney in California. The scarcity of available infants, combined with the emotion of desperate adoptive parents and the advent of the Internet, has enabled for-profit middlemen, from agencies to lawyers and consultants and facilitators, to charge fees that frequently stretch into the tens of thousands of dollars per case. So the kinds of things that they lobby for. So with an industry that makes that much money, they have a lot of influence and they're very much in bed with the pro-life movement um, and very much enmeshed in Republican politics. Before we
1: jump into that, Natalie, I just also want to point out that like what you said about the the supply and demand is is really interesting. Like when you think about how even though they're participating in this industry like this for profit adoption industry like the people who are trying to adopt children like they're also kind of in a vulnerable place where mm-hmm. like when you want a child that desperately like how much are you like if it's if it's just a matter of money like um, I'm sure there are plenty of people who will do whatever they can to to reach that. and like I think it just goes to show like exploitation can be happening on both sides of like the birthing
0: person and also the family trying to adopt. A a child. I mean, yeah, this is uh, literally everyone in this situation is taken advantage of, and Mm -hmm. um, everyone suffers, and especially the children. Um, Yeah. But but this this is one of those things where like involving market forces in um, you know babies, human beings, is like you know one of one of the most inhumane things possible. Um, And, yeah, I I think that's a really good point of, like, everyone involved in this is, like, in a very, very vulnerable position where they're maybe not able to push back or advocate for themselves as well. Um, They just, they will do whatever it takes. And um, it it puts everyone in a really nasty position, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's really dark. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's dark, um, and I just I just think people don't know, and yeah. like, and I mean, why would you? You can't imagine that like this is the way that we would run things. Like, you hear that it costs so much money, but you envision, you know, I don't know what you envision the money is going to to, but you know, what's happening is that people are profiting off of it and exploiting. The vulnerable emotional position that everyone in this circumstance is put into. So, and I'm I'm not attempting to like denigrate people who do want to adopt. No, adapt. no. I just I would like kind of as a takeaway, you know, press people to really think about going through public agencies or like the foster system instead. Not that mm-hmm. that, that doesn't have its issues as well. Well, no matter what, you have to do your research. Yes, absolutely. Everyone involved
2: needs to do their research and listen to people who have already been involved.
0: Yes, absolutely. I completely agree. I mean, just, just like really trying to like understand these issues a lot more. I mean, and when race comes into this, all of this is quadrupled. Like mm-hmm. s- someone who is um, attempting to adopt a child of a different ethnic, a national origin, um, ethnic group, or race than themselves, you really need to think long and hard about that because there are, are many, many issues that can come with that. Okay, so um, the adoption industry employs full-time lobbyists in Washington, D.C. So this is from um, Infant Adoption is Big Business in America, um, and I will definitely post this in the show notes as well. But basically, the National Council on Adoption is a private lobbying group whose members include 28 adoption agencies and um, represents 3.5 percent of U.S. adoption agencies. The NCFa and um, three adoption agencies just received 8.6 million from the federal treas- treasury to promote adoption to pregnant women at health cl- uh, health centers and clinics. So, one of the big things they lobby for is like tax breaks for adoptive parents and money from the government in order to do like promotion of adoption or PSAs or, you know, like um, distributing information to potential birth mothers, which is is really just having the, paying the government paying for you to do advertising for yeah, that's, yourself. That's wild <laughs> that these private
2: businesses are basically looking for funding for their marketing from the government.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this was a big... Uh, Bush administration, Bush 2 program with like kind of the the package of like pro-life policy reforms, but it's it's only increased since then. Um, The interesting thing about the supply and demand question when it comes to American infants is like the adoption industry behaves like this because um, the supply of relinquished uh, infants have been, has been steadily falling um so prior to Roe v Wade, you had primarily closed adoptions, and it was usually um you know you would whisk an unwed mother away and um, take the baby ad- adopt it out in a sealed. Exchange and then send the woman back to her her life and things everything changed with with Roe um, and then with shifting perceptions of like single motherhood. So in the seventies is when the supply of infants started to fall and it's fallen steadily ever since. So all of this is an industry that's watching like its revenue stream dry up. And so like what are they doing to try to respond to that? So one of the ways is by getting in bed with the pro life movement and with especially with um companies that run crisis pregnancy centers stuff like that.
1: Jesus Christ. Are yeah. Th- the the main villains of our
0: podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's crisis pregnancy centers.
1: Yeah. That's
2: that's interesting cuz like I mean, I always just assumed that they were religiously motivated, like churches were behind them, but it's wild to think that, no, it's big business, it's mm-hmm. capitalism behind it, the crisis centers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure there are some people with, like, truly, deeply held beliefs, uh, but it's, it's really... I'm doing that <laughs> jack-off motion. <laughs> but it's really, like, so you have, like, CBCs who partner with specific pregnancy centers. And basically, it provides them as a revenue stream. If you can get like mothers in the door, um, then they can like funnel them into like the adoption agency of their choice. And, you know, that's that's one of the, the streams of where infants come from is like people being diverted from pregnancy centers. Um, So other lobbying and legislative efforts of the adoption industry include supporting states to legally reduce the length of time after relinquishment becomes irrevocable. So reducing theoretically... And, like, in a just society, um, after the infant has been relinquished, the mom still has a little bit of time where she can change her mind, no questions asked. And they have been consistently lobbying to make that time shorter and shorter and shorter. So in California, it used to be, um, 90 days, and that has been cut down to 30 days. And then in some states, like I believe Idaho, it's cut down to 24 hours. So basically, you have 24 hours and then you're irrevocably severed and you have no recourse and you can never, you know, get your baby back. Which for anyone who's ever give, given birth or anyone who has ever thought about it for 10 seconds, I mean, you are reeling <laughs> in the moments yeah. after birth. Like, to try to have to make that decision that quickly is fucking sick.
2: Well, and when you pair that with the shortening length of time to make a decision on if you are going to have an abortion or not, it's just trying to take away options from people who can get pregnant.
0: Yes, absolutely. I've
1: I've heard though that after you give birth, there are these hormones that are released in your body that are protective and allow you to make (laughs) these these decisions really quickly. So magical post birth, yeah, super drugs decisions.
0: Don't worry about it. (laughs) Um. Some states allow no time for reconsideration. Um, Some states have enacted legislation that allows a mother to sign a binding relinquishment even before her baby is born, which a lot of times they can be pressured into doing. And someone might feel very differently after they give birth. And they have a fucking right to feel differently if they want. Um, And one of the biggest problems I have with the shit is that, you know, you should never feel pressured in any direction to make any decision regarding your pregnancy. And once you involve money and once people feel beholden to these agencies or even to the potential adoptive family, there's coercion involved. The you can't really say someone is freely choosing to give a child up for adoption if they have to pay back all this money if they do or, you know, if they're they're having They're not able to like truly make this decision and be able to take it back after the baby is born because people you don't know what you're going to feel like. Another thing that they aggressively so aggressively supports both anti-abortion legislation. They always give to like pro-life politicians and like champion abortion reducing measures. They also lobby for um, baby dump laws, which this is this is wild to me. So, um, basically, the private adoption industry has been a major driver behind the safe haven laws. What? Hmm. So, you know how... I'm not necessarily using this to denigrate safe haven laws, but it's interesting to me. So, it's this idea where, you know, you have a heated box where you can, like, place an infant, no questions asked. So that, like, you know, trying to prevent people from, like, panicking and, like hurting or killing
2: their baby. Isn't there a state where you can do that till they're, like, 12? <laughs> I've heard of that before, like, in Ohio or something. Like, until they're,
1: like, 12, you can just leave them at the fire department. Oh, dang. <laughs> Honestly, until they're 18, that seems reasonable. <laughs> yeah. I had to think about it. Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah, why do, Why are we forcing people to keep their kids? <laughs>
0: <It's> bullshit. <laughs> so, <laughs> basically, like, the private adoption industry I one, so this I'm, as i I'm in-
1: sorry, Natalie. I, for one, feel like the nation's children would be much better behaved if
0: <laughs> the threat... <laughs> they could be snapped off. Yeah. JK. Oh, my God
2: after kids hit puberty so many would be returned <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> you know how like um, during thanks the first thanksgiving break um, when people go to college they call that the turkey dump because that's when everyone breaks up with like their high school significant other it would be like a like a similar sort of seasonal kind of kind of thing happening with the nation's tweens yeah, like begin begin of
2: middle
0: school <laughs> yep yep <laughs> <laughs> anyway um so, <laughs> so this is like a partially sponsored law because they're because it's anonymous, there's no way to like verify that there isn't like fraud or corruption, or that the person who relinqu- relinquishes the infant might not even be the parent at all, and there's no way to know jeez, so. I don't know how we necessarily solve that problem because I think that they do serve a purpose, but at the same time, it's like, man, that's like a huge risk factor. And like, if you're following the money, that seems like a, I don't know. So,
2: So, I mean. So, this is a bit of like a jog, but have you guys ever heard of like found lane hospitals or homes? So, like, in mm. Victorian England and yeah. before that, you would, um, you would leave a baby. And, I don't know, the thing that really sticks out to me is they would usually leave, like, a scrap of fabric. And fabric was, like, very expensive back then. Um, but so they would have, like, the parent who dropped off the kid or the family member who did it would keep a scrap. And then they'd have a scrap in a book.
1: Oh, wow. With, like,
2: the details about the baby. Because, um, and honestly, a lot of it was a lot of these families thought they were going to come back for the child at some point but mm-hmm. they just never financially could in most cases.
1: That's, That's really interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I'd heard that term before of a foundling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Victorian England, if you were a woman who had sex out of uh, marriage, wedlock. you were a... Yeah, wedlock. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: you were a fallen woman mm-hmm. and, you know, liable to be the um, tragic figure in a dickensian novel <laughs> oh yeah where my bleak house heads at bleak heads bleakers <laughs> i'm sorry i'm not with you no that's okay i read that in college it was okay so bleak house is an interesting book in that wait who wrote bleak house I Charles think Dickens. I did read yep it. yep yeah i have read that mm-hmm If you did, you might remember the part where in Victorian England, they thought spontaneous combustion was like definitely, (laughs) uh, you know, (laughs) legit form of way, like ways to die. And so um, (laughs) that book (laughs) features uh, a spontaneous combustion (laughs) in addition to fallen women. I might have to revisit that one.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so those are some of the, the major policy concerns of the private adoption industry. And just like some of the major problems, like, you know, anytime something is about supply and demand, anytime you involve a for-profit company in something, it, you know, it's going to end up like being corrupt, having problems, and it just has particularly tragic consequences when you're talking about mothers and babies and adoptive families and you know it can be really really awful there's so much like pressure involved in it there's so much like you know when a baby is worth that much to an agency they're not really giving someone like full counseling about what it actually means or you know what the psychological impact on them and the child may be and so people end up waking up decades later like you know i was taken advantage of and i have been unable to mourn for my child for so long because i was like you know kind of indoctrinated in a way i think that all of us have of like this like smiling happy adoption story and like it's so selfless it's so you know whatever and like what who is served by those narratives so um Looking at my notes, what you were talking about, Stella, about adoptive parents being exploited is, like, a lot of times these companies are exploiting them for money, too. Like, for example, um, a lot of times they will take the fees from the adoptive parents up front, um, and then the second half will be when they match with a birth parent. So if they match and the um, birth parent decides not to go through with it, there is no incentive for the private adoption agency to actually attempt to rematch that family because they've already gotten the money from them. So often they will, adoptive adopted parents will be waiting and have no idea that they're actually making no attempt whatsoever because another family, you know, might go to the top of the list and still have that second payment to be made. So, you know. That was was my, I had an
1: acquaintance and that was her experience. Where they yeah. sunk thousands of dollars into working with multiple agencies, and yeah, issues like that just kept happening.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you know, there you're getting the money out of people. Like, you need to churn new people through the system so you can get new payments. And you know, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. We're not, you know, we're not going to help you. Mm-hmm. And so, and then I just wanted to like touch on open adoption a little bit because that is one that I read a lot of stories from people about. So, you know, we all kind of know what closed adoptions used to look like. And so the major, like kind of marketing attempt the adoption industry has made to like write itself is the idea of an open adoption where like the birth parent can continue to have contact throughout the course of the child's life and it's actually just like a form of coercive advertising a lot of times because then you know the mom can feel like okay but I'll still be able to be in contact with my child but she actually has no ability to guarantee that the adoptive parents stay in that picture and then also she might not actually anticipate the like level of trauma that can cause for her and for the adoptive child to like be constantly reopening this wound and unable to like you know build this bond over time and um it it also means that like the adoptee Will oftentimes see their birth parents go on to have other children. And so they have the feeling of like, you know, I have these siblings and I, you know, they didn't want me enough, but they went on to parent these Mm -hmm. children and they kept those. I feel like that's that
2: experience of like being aware of your first family having other kids is so common. I know many people who have had that experience and it's. Oftentimes, like, the kids that they do end up having were a very brief period of time after they gave up um, other kids for adoption. So it, the kids say, like, what is it was wrong with me? Mm-hmm. They didn't they don't have a lot more money. They, their life hasn't really changed.
0: Yes, absolutely. And like to the kept children, they have this feeling of like, well, if my dad loses his job, are they going to give me up, too? If we can just be <sighs> mm-hmm. No, I'm serious. I read a story. No, and, from, and that does happen. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I that has child happened. Who, who wrote about like her fear of like, you know, I had my brother was given up. And like, I always thought like if we had financial troubles, I was next. So, and so like heartbreaking. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it's this is just so much more complicated. I, I mean, that's mm-hmm. ultimately the theme, right? Is that all of this is so messy that. Capitalism and government have no fucking place in there. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, regulations should exist, that's not what I'm talking about. But just like market forces and like, you know, political control, those things Mm -hmm. like that, they have no business being in things this personal and this you know, complex. So I'll hand it over to yep. you, Anastasia. I'm sorry it took oh, for so well. long. I just... <laughs> I was about
2: to say that's a perfect time for me to take over. <laughs> Yay! Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. So especially talking about, like, the government being in it. But I want to talk about um, disruption and dissolution. Um, at least on TikTok, a lot of people use the re- word disruption to mean both things. Um, but disruption is technically, like say someone starts the process of adopting something, um, not something, sorry,
0: <laughs> of adopting a child. Whether um, it's a child it, or a guinea pig, something. Or a guinea pig.
2: I mean, <laughs> I guess these terms could apply to literally anything you're adopting. Um, but so, like, you're starting the process, but not everything has been finalized. If you stop it at that point and do not complete the process, that's just called disruption. And then if you do finish the process, all paperwork's finalized. And then you return the child or find a new home for the child, that's called dissolution. Oh,
0: the and, rehoming um, thing. Yeah, oh. are rehoming. Yeah, them? It's
2: <laughs> it's it's kind of shocking to use those words about people and children. But it's definitely a thing that has happened. Um I think a lot of people have heard like there was a like mommy video Mm -hmm. blogger who (laughs) adopted a child overseas and then rehomed them. But I wanted to talk about a case, probably like the first time I ever heard about this was like uh, around 2015. And it was um, basically, so this Arkansas state rep at the time, he's no longer in office, um, but his name is Justin Harris. Yes. So in like 2011, um, the mother of these two girls reached out to him and his wife and she's like, I know your family. I'm looking to have my children adopted. I would love for them all to go to your home. And then there's a lot of shenanigans in there (laughs) with like the, well, they were with the foster family. And basically everybody involved was like, these girls going to live with the state rep and his wife is not a good placement for them. Um, The girls had had a lot of trauma. And I don't really want to go into the trauma with them, um, especially because I don't think they're even adults yet. I don't think they've had any opportunity to tell their story yet. But so adoption is finalized. The state rep and his wife do adopt two of the daughters, um, and that's finalized in April of 2013. So in October of 2013, they hand the girls off to another family. Oh my gosh. So we're talking six months. In six months, they said, we can't do this. So six months of trying, and they're done. And that drop off usually does not go through the state. It's states decide how it's run, but usually you have to hire a lawyer and do some paperwork. But it's not something where anyone has to review the family they're going to and there's no like official process for it uh like i've heard many cases on tiktok of people not knowing that they were going to live with another family oh my gosh. so like gosh. they go on a day trip yeah like <gasps> you're going on a no. day trip with your family and then they leave you there that's so yep. fucked up It is. Um, But unfortunately, in this case with the um, representative, Justin Harris of Arkansas, the family that the girls went to, um, the father of that family, um, so then their third family at this point, um, he did sexually abuse one of the girls. And that came out in like 2014 or 2015. And I specifically got most of this info, refresh my memory on it, from... Uh, What website is that? Um, (laughs) abcnews.go.com. Our call was from October 23rd of 2015, and it's titled, How Three Young Girls and an Arkansas State Official Became the Center of an Adoption Controversy. So, that I heard about that case a while ago, and yeah. I was like, wow, what a crazy case that must not happen very frequently. And then I didn't think about it for a while. <laughs> sure. And then I got on TikTok, and I started to hear about this. And not only do I hear about it, it's like half of adoption TikTok, and um, they're talking about people trying to rehome their kids on Facebook, which is. Against Facebook rules, um, but it does kind of seem like Facebook is more strict about when you're trying to rehome a pet on Facebook
0: than they are with oh children. Gosh. Notedly moral and uh, stringent company, Facebook. <laughs> 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 so, so
2: moral on the up and up at all times. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was so like TikTok had me shocked, and then <laughs> prepping to talk about this today. I did some more research and I went to childwelfare.gov and there they talk about how there is no tracking. Um, there's no tracking of when disruptions happens and there's no tracking of when dissolutions happen. So they have estimates, um, but they're pretty broad estimates and they have no idea if the numbers are higher. Anyway, so for disruptions, um, in out of 100% of adoptions starting, 10 to 25% of them are disrupted. So people meet a child, say they want to adopt the child, and then they do not finalize that. And frequently the kids will have like even lived with them oh my God. for a period of time. Um, and then say they, so when they fully adopted them, they're a hundred percent legally a part of their family. One to 5% of the time those adoptions are dissolved. So Jesus. one to five percent of children oh who God. are adopted are essentially returned,
1: and this is why, like, like you ask yourself, who is advocating for the child and like making sure that this placement is healthy and safe for them, mm-hmm. and is also going to be okay for the adoptive family as well? Because, like, I'm sure when someone, ad- you know, to try to give them the benefit of the doubt, other than like obviously predatory people who just like want you know, to abuse children, like, you don't adopt someone with the intention of it not working out, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely not.
2: But it's like, Um, no, people are like, even on these Facebook posts that seem so cruel. Yeah. People are at their wits end. They feel overwhelmed and unsupported and they're like, I cannot keep living in the situation I'm living in. And the only way they see to fix it is to rehome their child
1: yeah yeah so they're like that's why these private adoption agencies you would think that they are brokering these these adoptions (laughs) like they should have like there needs to be some sort of like professional or you know if this was regulated by the state like there would be a social worker or someone with training coming in and like providing support and advocacy specifically for the child but also like easing that that transition for the family to make sure that it's successful and that they the child and their adoptive family have everything they need
0: yeah i mean follow-up services are like not part of the thousands of dollars that you pay and like it seems every single person involved in this it seems like should be connected with counselors and follow-up services and but there's no requirement to do that i mean everyone involved in this should have access to like professionals
2: Yeah. So I think the big thing that jumps out to me about this is that these kids who are returned, free-homed, they're clearly not being seen as actually members of the family. Yeah. That's clearly what's going on here because we don't, you know, you don't put your kid up for adoption after having them for 10 years because they have a lot of medical needs, Or they have um, some emotional issues. Mm -hmm. Um, These are things that people work through with their children.
0: So is that what you were kind of seeing, like reasons that people gave? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so
2: a lot of people talk about, um, like, the kids are violent, they have special needs. But we don't think it's normal for, like, say you have a 14-year-old and they get in a car accident and they have some additional needs, we wouldn't think it would be normal for you to rehome them. Right. That's just, these are excuses that, like, biological children are violent sometimes. Biological children have mm-hmm. special needs. But for some reason, if you adopt a child and then you run into these issues, you can rehome them and still be, like, a normal member of the community. You would never be able to do that with a biological child. Like, with that... um video blogger lady or this state rep they're in ways still like respected members of the community even
1: though they
2: stopped caring for their own child
1: i do like i i think the fuse is probably shorter for children that are not biologically yours or that have been recently adopted but i do think also like there are families that end up you know instead. Not institutionalizing necessarily, but, like, Mm -hmm. having their children live in group homes or things like that. Or
2: with other family members, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it definitely happens. I think a big part of it, like, going back to the whole conversation about research, is that a lot of people are shocked when they, like, a lot of people end up rehoming. They talk about, like, how the child has trauma, how the child Mm -hmm. has emotional issues. And these are common things. For adopted children to have, and generally these issues are only going to increase if they yeah. are, um, if there is a dissolution and they're moved somewhere else.
0: Did you see that statistic? Um, run across it in your reading, which is that adoptees are four times more likely to attempt suicide in their life. Yes. Um, yeah, it's pretty disturbing. And I mean, that's that's just kind of like that. That is going to be the case. Like you have to be prepared mm-hmm. for that, and the system seems to be letting. I mean, bes- besides the fact that like what you should do this research beforehand, it's also like they should be counseled on that stuff too. It's like
2: yeah, it shouldn't be optional to not do the research. Absolutely, <laughs> that shouldn't be that shouldn't be something people can do.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I'll share that. I think I've shared this on the podcast before. Like, but when my friend was thinking about pursuing an adoption the agency she was working with mentioned like well would you know she's white would you be open to adopting a child of another race and so she started doing all this research on like transracial adoption and like how to make sure that if a child was placed with them that was not white like they would be able to raise them in a supportive and you know just like a she's trying to do the work to to do a good job of potentially being um, a parent and assumed that the adopting agency would offer similar resources and support and she and her partner went to the agency and she was like, yeah, I've done all this research. you know, can you suggest more information or like how can we be successful? And like we have all these questions and the adopting agency was literally like, Oh, you know more more much more about this than, than we do already. Like, <laughs> oh my God. like blatantly saying this to them and they're like, wow, we we just like she, she, you know, she's the type of person who like does that that extra research, you know, knowing what would be potentially involved and like caring about that. Um, but was, she said that was something that was really eye-opening to her that this this agency that professionally Is placing children with families. Like they do not offer that type of support and that type
0: of information. I mean, that just shows how the private adoption industry is pretty rooted in white supremacy as well. Yeah. I Mm -hmm. mean, like the way children got taken away from Native families in order so they could be raised as white children. Yep. Or uh, white people, you know, literally separating
1: children from their their families during slavery and selling them as (laughs) it's super messed up and there's a a proud history of it in our country
0: and that that displacement stuff is rough i wasn't sure like what all you were going to go into and i thought maybe it was about like different like native communities but like man that those rates are really really dark i i guess i just thought it was rarer than that <laughs> like yeah <laughs> I don't know I mean That's I thought so it bad. was rare
2: too I even like I a couple of days ago when we were talking about it, I was like oh I'm ready to rant I, <laughs> and then they did research and I'm like oh I'm really
1: ready to rant <laughs> uh, I it's just it's fascinating that like so, so you guys have mentioned some of the articles that you've read and some of the sources that you found information on, but I don't recall ever hearing, and maybe I just haven't, you know, personally stumbled onto any sort of like expose, exposes of this industry and like what is happening under the service and like how different it is from what we're being sold. And, you know, to both your points, like how can we follow the money and, and realize that, there's something very rotten about <laughs> about the industry of literally selling children and just messing up so many lives in so many different ways <laughs> you know i i don't know if
2: there are many and one tiktok account i follow is um is this lady named krista and our handles um Carpuzzi, but she talks about how angry people are like she's she keeps herself pretty anonymous. Um, a lot of the stuff she talks about is stuff that people in like adoption groups on Facebook will send to her, and she's not even on Facebook. But she gets threats, and she's just a lady on TikTok. Oh
0: people, so yeah, yeah. People do not want to talk about this. Mm-hmm. They do not want this like kind of myth to get punctured. There's – because some of the people I have followed will, like, post comments they've gotten, and it's, like, very, Mm -hmm. very hateful and, like, suggesting that you, like, hate adoptive families or, like, why don't – and it's just, like, it's – it's, like, we can't have an honest conversation about any of this, can we? Like, all of the nuance is lost, like – I mean, and I I will say one thing is that every single one of these issues is compounded by a hundred times when you're talking about international adoption, Mm-hmm. and Ugh. there is much more outright theft of children and there are bounty hunters and they I mean it you know i we are able to get much more information about what's happening even within the United States and there's almost no information at all it's like really difficult you have to dig for stuff or a lot of it's older it's hard to like there's no like centralized way to track any of this mm-hmm. um, and then it's just that is like Ten times worse if we're talking about like you know people who are getting children from overseas, and other countries I think are really cracking down on the ability of Americans to get children from there because that you know it's it's a huge problem well, when
1: Angelina Jolie did it, it became so trendy <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, if, if Madonna did it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> oh, when famous, beautiful narcissists do it, then of course this is a trend that will will disseminate to the masses.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I don't, I don't want to judge them directly because we don't necessarily know the ins and outs of what happened. Yeah, but on the surface, it doesn't, it doesn't look like it was the ideal situation for the children, which is, you know that's what matters is yeah. what the children need and what's best for them and that seems to be not the focus of anyone involved in adoption
0: and it's like no one follows up to ask when they're older yeah
2: consent that's one thing i hear a lot about on tiktok is the lack of consent mm. so like oddly similar to the conversation about abortion You know, these children don't have a say in who's allowed to adopt them. And I've heard suggestions of, like, guardianship um, until the child can consent to being adopted.
0: Yeah, I saw that, too. And I think it's a, a really interesting idea of, like, you know, not dissolving anyone's rights or, like, you know, like kind of waiting and just be sure that they're, like, you know, there's someone to care for the child and, you know, to to let things be a lot more slower and thoughtful. And you you still have an adult who's, like, managing decisions, but you can wait a while so the, like, children can have more of a say in it. I think, like, mm. from reading, actually, there are – met. this is not – this doesn't have to be the way it is. I mean, there are lots and lots and lots of ideas that people who have actually – been adopted or who have been first families or second families have about how you could improve this like this isn't it doesn't have to be this way but you have to take the money out of it there's no other way to yep. fix it but mm-hmm. if you can take the money out of it there are there are lots of safeguards that could be in place there are tons of ideas for how You know, we can keep people keep families together as much as possible and respect all the people involved and be sure that every child has a loving home. And, you know, there are there are tons of ways you just if you if the profit is there, then it's it's going to continue being like this. But there are lots of like legal arrangement and support systems and things that we could do to make this so much better that, you know, we just are unwilling to do because people lose money if you do it.
1: If we had any kind of real welfare system in this country, like if we just gave money to people and pulled them out of poverty, like it sounds like it would solve so many of these issues. If we gave people free access to all the health care they needed and they weren't terrified of losing their housing or you know ability to provide for themselves or any children they want to have, like this would solve a lot of problems.
0: Yeah. And I mean, then adoptive parents could know, like, resoundingly that this is, like, was, like, an ethical process mm-hmm. and that, you know, they never have to be questioning. Like, it, it's really, it's best That's for such a good everyone. Point. Yeah. Yeah. Of, like, you know, they, they would know, like, you know, the, the birth parents were, all, like, they have all the support systems they need and they freely made this choice. Like, if we had those things, then then you could be – you could know – and I'm not saying there's a, not an ethical way to do this, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's it's not this. Like, this isn't right. And, you know, as long as we're attempting to funnel people into these situations, like, this is not going to be the silver bullet answer that, like, conservatives want to say it is because it's just, like, this – the way it is, isn't good for adoptive families. It isn't good for first families and it isn't good for adoptees. And we're not listening to any of the people involved in this. And it's just like, you know, the, the whims of this, like kind of, these kind of dark forces, I don't know who have like a big incentive for none of us to like think through it and to not ask adoptees what their experience is like. And like, you know, there's a big incentive by like a lot, by a $14 billion to have this like myth continue without any like, you know, because if we create these safeguards and we create more ethical systems, like we have to examine what was wrong with the systems before. And that's really uncomfortable for people. Yeah. Yeah. Not
2: not to like excuse us for not having looked into this before, because it's definitely important,
0: but... There's a lot of money behind us not looking into it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's, there are a lot, I mean, there's so many things like that. And, like, I mean, everyone in adoptive parents, like, also, they, like, want to have children. And that's, that's understandable. It's, like, everyone involved is just trying their best. And the system is so fucked up and so riddled with corruption that every single person involved is getting hurt. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that was cheerful.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sounds like a great uh, note
1: to end the end the episode on. <laughs> is, is there anything else you guys want to share, or Anastasia, do you want to plug your Twitter and all? That I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely like my life's work, so
2: <laughs> I really need to push this. Yeah. Um, so I'm my handle's Anastasia C G. So that's A N E S T H E. S I A C G. So it's like Anastasia by Anastasia.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, she's a, an artist and a comrade and promotes like her mutual aid projects and like always has really smart things to say. So a really good follow. I also
2: like drunk. I also like drunkenly tweet about horror movies like once a week. <laughs>
0: if you're into that, <laughs> yeah. So I always follow her. Like, reach out if you want like names of her like favorite TikTokers, and then we'll also provide links of like a bunch of the different like blogs we've read and like how can you seek out these stories. I think that's the bi- the biggest takeaway is just like yeah. go out there and read people's stories. Like, no one listens to adoptees. Like, give them the chance to be heard and wait to um, ans- act like this is some kind of answer to this, like, larger abortion question until you have gone and, like, s- like listen to the voices who are actually impacted.
1: Yep. I agree 100%. When you're done with that, you can watch the TikToks of those boys that are <laughs> pretending to get arrested. <laughs>
0: Or if you're Stella, you could watch the 500 dog TikToks I've sent you that you never respond to.
1: I just realized I didn't even know they had DMs on TikTok. You I was like, gonna say I was gonna say earlier it's not easy to get to DMs. No, on TikTok. yeah, I'm blaming I'm blaming the TikTok UX designers. Um, I'll take this up with them, Natalie. Because believe me, I. I have a lot of content to catch up on. So <laughs> we better we better sign off. But um, Anastasia, come back anytime. This was a real pleasure. Yeah, I definitely loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right. Maybe it's
0: cause she into Leo's and I was in the trios. For salvage troops to Rio. Couldn't help. It's getting cold. Better bring your ski close. Peek it through the keyhole. The door locked by myself. And I'm feeling it right now. Cause it's the time when my heart gets shot down. Lock up, lock up, lock up, lock up, lock up. Pull a little champagne cranberry. Lock up. Feeling lied to like Pam never said you could talk. Feelings like Zulu, nothing is a shocker. I hit her with making dick. I'm the new Shabba, she looking for a daddy, coming big Papa. On to the next saga, focus on the future and let the crew knock up. Star Wars fur, yeah I'm rocking you, baka the one chief rocker, number one chief rocker. Oh.